Well, one of the names that you should probably know when it comes to church history, one of the names, you know, there are a lot of names that you ought to know. Uh, one of the names that you ought to know when it comes to church history and just Christian living is the name Joni Erickson Tata. At the age of 17, she was left to drown in a lake after jumping into the Chesapeake Bay into what she thought was deep water. She immediately fractured her cervical vertebrae and instantly became quadriplegic with no movements from the shoulders down even to this day. For the next several years, she desired and attempted to take her own life multiple times. She suffered extreme depression, anger, and even questioned her faith. But it's Joni Erickson Tata today at age 71 where she's recognized by doing a lot for herself overcoming cancer several times, writing over 40 books, painting marvelous pictures, leading weekly Bible studies in her local church, speaking around the world, and even leading a worldwide organization that that aims to aid ministry in the disability community and being married over 40 years. Uh, She has said that though she has done a great deal with her own life, there was one thing that she could not do. She said, though I certainly should have died in the way after I dove in, what I needed more than anything was something that I could never do for myself. I needed God that day to forgive me for my sins, and he did. Our passage this morning uh, from God's holy word is a passage that shows us a climax of true power in a series of three miracles followed up by a call to discipleship. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, a a disciple of Jesus, shows us that a man is being healed, but far more powerfully and by far more famously, that man is being forgiven of his sins by the sheer word of the Lord in front of him that day. In a shocking arrival, Jesus says something that even more importantly, uh, something that people don't say to each other, and they probably shouldn't say to each other. He declares something that nobody would have the audacity to proclaim. But even on top of that, he demonstrates to those who would be looking that not only from his power can someone who is lame rise and walk, but from his power can someone go from deadness to life. What our text shows us is the fulfilling Messiah King Jesus displaying his full and true nature through his grace and mercy. What our text will show us and what Matthew shows us continually again and again is the the full display of this coming Messiah King pouring out his nature and power for all to see. And here we see his grace given to this, this man in lameness and his own mercy. Now if you're following along with the outline, you'll notice that I didn't give you an outline. And uh, that means I can do whatever I want this morning, and I can keep you for however long I will. Although I did notice that they put a clock on the TVs behind you all, so that I won't. But I think what we see here is a, is a couple of movements in the passage. And it's, and it's not necessarily movements through, uh, you know, you could see them as scenes in a movie. It's not necessarily movements of a pathway that you could plot this narrative or this epic or this, this call for people. But rather we see that uh, there, there is a movement in the text through the, through the characters that Matthew has unfolded before us. And I think one of the things that he does, first of all, is he sets the mood in the first couple of verses of the story. So let Matthew 
set the mood for you according to his word, where he demonstrates to us that even though these these people, Jesus and his disciples, even though they've gone through some intense situations, that this was a pretty good season for Jesus and his followers. It was, it was such a good season that people were healed. It was such a good season that, that people were swept up in the truth of the Old Testament. It was such a good season that, that crowds in mass form were following this man wherever he would go. It's, it's high time for this tour. He came in proclaiming his kingdom, teaching about what a disciple is, a redeemed person, and demonstrating his power through miracles. Crowds were flocking to him. It was good times. But Matthew also portrays this mood as as not so good times. There were things that were seemingly more consistent on top of all of Jesus' movements where difficulty began not only following Jesus around, but now we see that, that opposition to Jesus certainly shows up. And this is somewhat predictable because he did, after all, cross into Gentile territory to cast out violent, evil demons from people. We see that in the the passage that we heard from last week. Uh, Going into a Gentile area, it was no surprise that the demons would have seen him and they went wild. And, And even people who would have seen his mighty work through healing a demonically infested man. It would have been people who would have seen this and they would have begged him to actually leave the town because they didn't want to mess with whatever he was doing and whatever he was dealing with. Our passage is even more threatening, though, to Jesus and the company that he keeps. It's, it's intense on his own, but Matthew places it along a series of controversies between Jesus and other religious leaders of that day. Here, the, the Pharisees will grumble that Jesus would blaspheme their God. Uh, And later, they will grumble that Jesus would associate himself with open sinners. And then beyond that, they will say that he he heals people now by the power of Satan. So here we have Matthew setting the mood where Jesus is about to approach opposition where he we find him in a crowded house. Now, a lot of this, we, we learn about this episode from other books of the Bible, places like Luke and Mark, that'll demonstrate kind of a more full account. So if you want kind of the chopped up version or the Cliff Notes version of what is happening, you have that in Matthew. In fact, one of the other Gospels actually have twice as much words given to this account where they paint a portrayal of what is going on around Jesus. He's in a crowded house, and Jesus had briefly gone into this Gentile territory, but soon after, he got back into his boat. He he got in his boat and then went to the Gentile area and was kicked out. Now he got back into his boat and went back to what was known as his own town. We see this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 of your text. Now Luke's account in Luke 5 has way more detail than Matthew. He sets a larger scene where he portrays the scene with Jesus teaching. So we see Jesus already teaching, already having a crowd around him, already in a full house. He was healing many within that circumstance for the power of the Lord, we see in Luke chapter 5, was very present amongst them. And it was a diverse audience. We see in Luke's account that there were sick people, there were disciples, there were local onlookers, and Luke mentions that there were also Pharisees and teachers of the law from all over. And those will be the men who show opposition to what Jesus is doing. So Matthew here just abruptly brings us into this living room. He paints Jesus as commanding a center stage. So we don't have a lot of fluff or set design or character analysis. It's just immediately Matthew paints Jesus in the middle of a living room. And you can imagine going from like a broad movie set in the book of Luke to now just a single shot camera focused right on Jesus' face. And if I were you, I'd read and compare the other pictures given to us from 
uh, Luke and Mark on your own time, but what we see here is we need to keep in mind what Matthew wants you to immediately see. What we see here is Jesus at the center of this story. All of the gospel accounts kind of have their own angle at the miraculous event of Jesus. None of them None of them take away from him. None of them contradict one another. None of them show things that, oh, man, if only Matthew knew that, then he would have really worshipped Jesus as he truly should. They're showing us different portrayals. And what Matthew is doing is setting in our midst the arrival of the Messiah. And he's there. Look at verse 2. Out of the blue, friends of a paralytic carry him. They carry him to Jesus to be healed. There's an obstacle of getting this man to Jesus, though. And the issue here is not that they were bothered or interrupting, not that they were bothering or interrupting Jesus, but the obstacle that is happening is that they couldn't get their friend to Jesus. For whatever reason, they would have seen Jesus as someone who, who would have helped this person in need. And what a kind thing for a friend to do, to bring their friend to Jesus. We recognize that obstacles are common in Jesus' miracles. You think of Zacchaeus, a short man needing to climb up into a tree. I don't know how hard it is to climb up in a tree, but it's very difficult. And then to linger there in the midst of all your friends, there was an obstacle there. And here, this person was needing to be healed by Jesus, and he couldn't even walk there. So his friends carried him there. This happens too, and not by accident. It seems to be a part of the Lord's design to test at least some of those who are called to come to him. It's like he asks, how serious are you about the quest that I've called you to? Will the first obstacle stop you? Or do you care enough to fight through it? Yet we recognize that with real faith comes obstacles. And so I just think it's not a main point of the story. It's really just an aside But how kind are this man's friends. And you might even reflect of the people around you, what is their greatest need? And how unkind might you be to them to not bring them to the foot of the cross? Imagine for a moment there, these friends were showing real faith. Imagine for a moment there, one of them had to bring up the plan. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's drop this guy from the ceiling. You know, you sit around the table and you go, I I know a way that we can get in. Let's peel back, you know, whatever you made to make houses there. Let's peel that back and drop our friend from a giant mattress. Surely, we don't have it in any of our texts, but surely there was a friend there who was discerning going, I don't know if that's a good idea. Yet he convinced them and said, let's do this. This must have seemed desperate and insane. The crowd below hears the sounds of, digging and pounding. They feel the first flecks of debris falling from the ceiling. Soon a shower of loosened materials cascades down on them. The people below begin to scatter, but they must gaze upward, wondering what is happening to them. I don't know if any of you have ever de-popcorned a house. I fear the time when popcorn will come back into fashion because in the houses that we've lived in, we spend a lot of time and effort and debris falling on our faces, getting popcorn off of ceilings. Don't know why that was ever a cool idea, but this is way more intense than that. This would have been way more hectic than that. They were peeling back true ceilings and then dropping a friend onto the scene. This must have seemed desperate and insane, but, but one of them was bold enough to bring it up and the rest were friends enough to do it. Two of them, uh, we recognize that to them, people were the more powerful than property. Luke says that when Jesus saw their face, saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And so we see here a mood that Matthew was painting, a a sense of desperation, almost a sense of insanity, a a sense of cultural abruptness, a sense of desire, and also we still see a sense of a man on a mattress 
now in a living room where he didn't belong. We see a paralytic, friends, and a man who has done amazing things. He's captured a crowd and a following, but here he says something extremely unbelievable, extremely life-altering, and frankly, it will cause not only a new life for this person, but a big problem for Jesus altogether. He says in our text, take heart or cheer up, cheer up, your sins are forgiven. And that's the mood that Matthew is portraying for us in the first two verses, but here, what Matthew was also doing is he is allowing Jesus to unveil a deep problem of this situation. We see those in verses 3 through 6, where we see Matthew allowing Jesus to show, to show a deep problem. Jesus here is forgiving sins, and alongside that, he is causing a crisis in the hearts of others. He's forgiving sins and causing a crisis in the hearts for others. So, if you're following along, and an outline not provided, point number two, mini point number A. I do not remember if I have a mini point letter B, but here we go. Returning to our story in Matthew, the paralytic was suspended right in front of Jesus. He now wants, uh, he now waits for a touch. He now waits for a word so that God's will will be done. But Jesus does something very unexpected along this. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You need to understand that, that this wasn't just a pronouncement and then the story is over. You've got to understand that there is a great sense of gravity here. That they came for a healing, but Jesus says this. It's like, he didn't, it's like he didn't understand what they were asking. Now, we dropped this guy from the sky, and we want you to heal him. I do not care about his sin. He's probably a nice guy. You know, what are you talking about? Think of everyone who might be baffled by this, but the religious in the room, they were baffled by this. What our text will demonstrate is that the religious in the room were actually hacked off. Now, why? They, they saw what Jesus did was uttering a statement as what they call, and what we would understand, as blasphemous. Jesus was doing something that was so horrific in their view because what he is saying is something that only Yahweh says. Something that only Yahweh can pronounce. Something only Yahweh has control of. And so you see what Matthew is doing here. He's not only showing that Jesus is powerful over the storms, He's not only showing that Jesus is powerful over something supernatural like a demonic man, but here he is showing that Jesus is just as powerful as you could ever imagine because here he is showing his true power over a man's soul. Because by announcing a forgiveness, he claimed to be divine. Now, their reasoning would have gone this way. We, we would grasp that the person who is offended is also the person who forgives. So if I strike Bill, I don't think anyone here is named Bill. If I strike Bill, I don't want to strike Bill. If I strike Bill, I cannot rationally ask Bob to forgive me for what I've done to Bill. I haven't struck Bob. I've struck Bill. If I offend Bill, I must ask Bill for forgiveness. And if Jesus has never met this paralytic before, you know, he didn't have his card or his name checked in at the front door. It wasn't like, oh, you're Tom, so we'll let you in. If he's never met this man before, we wonder why Jesus should forgive him. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, why was he the one who was sinned against? He implies that the paralytic has sinned against him by saying, your sins are forgiven. Or you could say, I forgive you. And this makes no sense. If Jesus is an ordinary man because the paralytic had no opportunity to sin against him, therefore Jesus here is implying that he is not an ordinary man. But what Matthew is demonstrating to us more deeply 
we see Jesus of Nazareth implying that he is offended even by any and all of the paralytic sins because he himself is Yahweh. And this really hacked these people off that someone would ever claim to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. By this, Jesus implicitly claims to be divine because only God is offended by every sin. We, we see in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, God says that I, even I, am he who blots out transgressions for my sake and remembers your sins no more. So if I strike Bill, I not, in, not only need to apologize and seek reconciliation with Bill, but I also, according to God's holy word, must seek reconciliation with God too. That's why every sin that we commit against someone else, I need to confess that sin to God as well. And so you can see how much opposition would go against what Jesus is doing. Since God alone can forgive sins, and Jesus here is announcing that he is forgiving sins, the teachers and the Pharisees say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? We see them say in verse 3 or in Luke 5. Now, what's so incredible here is that Jesus doesn't just hear their words, but actually knows their thoughts before they utter them. Jesus knows the thoughts of these people. It's almost, maybe some of you have addressed your children, and you go, now I know, I know what you're thinking, but before you react, let me just remind you who is the Lord of this household, right? Oh, that wasn't just done in my house. Okay, all right. <laughs> Jesus knows their thoughts and presses the issue as he often does. Look at verses 4 and 5. Let me read them to you. Verse, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. But Jesus knowing their thoughts, say, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, friends, you've got to think about it. What was evil in their hearts about what Jesus did? Not recognizing who Christ was, they were defaming God. Right? Not giving attribute of his glory and his holiness and his mercy and his grace. Not giving him credit where credit is due. They were demonic towards him. They were satanic towards him. They were sinning against them even in their own thoughts. Now, verse 5, for which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, the answer to Jesus' question wasn't immediately obvious. In one sense, it is equally easy to say either your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. In another sense, it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because we can visually see the outcome of him telling this man to get up and walk. I can say, get up and walk, and you may not do that, and that actually shows you how little power I have. So it's actually harder to say get up and walk. But for Jesus, both are remarkably easy. And he'll prove it. Look at verse verse 6 of chapter 9. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. In effect, Jesus says, I've forgiven this man. I do claim to be God. I am God. And I will prove both of my power and my mercy to you right now. And Jesus commands the paralytic to rise in front of everyone. And here we have eternity hanging in the balance. You can imagine watching this movie at home and the power goes out. And you go, wait, wait, what's the end of the story? How does this shape out? Lee Duncan, the the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, says the function of Christ's work, the function of this miracle in this passage is to attest to the claims that he has made about who he is. The function of this miracle is to prove, is to evidence, is to compel those present to the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ 
has the power to forgive sins. And so this miracle is an attesting sign. It's a sign that corroborates his person, his claims, his message, his authority. What Jesus does is something amazing, so amazing, that the Old Testament in his personhood is fulfilled for everyone to see. This is not just someone saying, get up and walk, and in a happenstance, it happens. It's not just Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, and this man would go home feeling good about himself because at least there's this one guy who doesn't hate him all the time. We see here that eternity hangs in the balance. If this guy doesn't get up and walk, then you have no reason to worship this God of the Bible. The thrust of this whole passage is to remind us that Christ has the power and the authority to do everything he says. To live out a fulfillment of everything that was said. To play the role in front of these people that the man they have been waiting for is present. And watch what he does. If the man rises, the Lord is the Lord, has the power to forgive sins. If not, Jesus actually is a blasphemer and deserves full punishment of the law. What they would have done to him, had this man not gotten up and walked out, they would have killed him. And they should have. Anyone who claims to be the Lord and is not the Lord should be cast out of our midst. But here, if this were a movie, we would now have to suffer the dramatic pause. Because we see Luke says the man stood up immediately. Or we don't have to wait for a dramatic pause because you see Luke says the man stood up immediately. Not only did he stand up immediately, Luke says that he took a stretcher. And walked out. He didn't just kind of peruse out of a hospital room like some of us have done, like after a surgery, where it's like, I just had a surgery in my arm. How is it so hard to walk all of a sudden? This man, who wasn't able to walk or crawl, now gets up and holds on to a stretcher and gets out of there. It says he went home praising God. Matthew simply says this, keeping the attention on the Lord, the man got up and went home. <laughs> what, I mean, what an ending to a story. He just got up and left. The healing brings our episode to its climax where the quest of the men comes to a successful conclusion, but more importantly, it demonstrates that Jesus does have the right to forgive sins, and he does have the power to forgive sins. It is Jesus' pronouncement on your life that you would recognize your forgiveness altogether. Jesus' critics see that he is the Lord, just as he says. They, They now have to wrestle with what just happened. So we see a third movement in the passage. Not only is Jesus showing opposition, not only is Jesus portraying himself and his nature as powerful and merciful, but also, finally, we need to let the characters of this story around Jesus show the responses that you and I have towards Christ. Let these characters in this passage show the responses that you and I have towards Christ. What happened next? This was perhaps the most Uh, the greatest public manifestation of Jesus' deity until his resurrection. Uh, It's instructive for us to consider how these people would respond to it. We are looking at something that is so powerful that we won't see it until the end of our testimony from this book. But remember who was there. Remember the people in the room. There's a paralytic. There are friends. There's a crowd. And even there are religious leaders. Now observe how each of them responded in a different way. The paralytic. Uh, I told you earlier, Luke says the paralytic went home praising God. Matthew just says that he, he got up and he left. He did right as God commanded him to do. And that sounds about right, since we know he and his friends have faith in Christ. They, they came there for a reason. 
why wouldn't they then, within faith, out of obedience, respond exactly how Jesus would have called them to do? We recognize that what Matthew is portraying for us is that Jesus is a man, but he possesses the very authority of God. And the reason for that is because he is the Son of God, recognized as the Son of Man, or the Son of God, or the very Son of God in our testimony. The people who see his authority on display here don't have a full-fledged theology of the Incarnation, yet they see him and he has unveiled himself to them as the Son of God. But what they know are the things that Jesus has done, and the things that Jesus has done in the name of God. So they are floored. They're in awe. They go away praising God. They have a, they have a fear of God, which means they are in awe of God. Now think about not just the paralytic, but also the crowd, those who are just randomly in this living room. Like, what a show did they just get, right? Matthew says the crowd was filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Now this sounds pretty positive initially, yet we're disappointed that they missed the point altogether. They were glad God had given authority to men, but they did not realize that Jesus is actually the God-man with whom the authority rests in completely. Their awe was good, and their awe was in the sense of looking around. It's amazing what men can do. Right? Another way to translate this is such authority to a man. So we see that their all was good, yet a little bit deficient. Now take your eyes to the teachers and the Pharisees, the, the others, the religious people in the room. The, the gospel writers do not mention the response of the teachers and Pharisees. But upon reflection, maybe their, their silence is the most troubling part. They had enough knowledge and information to respond correctly, they, but they do not praise Jesus as they should have done. They do not repent for thinking him a blasphemer. They are actually standing in the face of God and they do not rise and follow him. Now, now, someone may think we read too much into this silence, but the silence is very temporary. Because just three verses later, you'll see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, just three verses later, they are there complaining that Jesus would associate with sinners. Not much later, they would say that he is in union, union with Satan. Luke would say that they soon hatched angry plots against him. So we recognize what's going on here through some of these characters. That we're, showing, we're being shown how other people are responding to Jesus. We're seeing how the paralytic responded, and probably his friends. We're seeing how the crowd responded, and the religious teachers responding. Now, one of the ways that you are, you are encouraged to read the Bible, J.I. Packer kind of famously said, the one question that we should ask whenever we read the Bible or hear the Bible, we shouldn't ask any other question other than, what does this passage teach me about my God? Instead of, well, what do you think? And I'm as guilty of it as anything. You know, you might, you might get in the car on the ride home and be like, well, what did you think of the sermon? And hopefully you're corrected. Well, I thought about God during the sermon or something like that. And you're invited to correct each other at whatever life group or Bible study or whatever. What does this passage say here about God? And this is a glorious passage to test that truth on and on because Matthew here has our focus. Think about it. Different than the other Gospels, Matthew has our focus on our Lord and Savior. He is reminding us again and again of his power, his glory, and his authority. Here we see the triune God spoke and acted that day. The Spirit worked with power, and Jesus declared sins forgiven and raised a paralytic. Jesus proved he can indeed forgive sins. And if so, then he is the unique Son of God 
the fully manifested Yahweh in their presence. But we must ask who grasped the lessons. Not just seeing how people reacted, but who would have grasped or held on to what was really happening here. We have to ask what is going on here. We have Jesus, a crowd, and religious leaders, a paralytic, and his friends, and each had his own role in recognizing or holding on to God's truth here. For Jesus, the episode tests his character and his claims. Is this really the Son of God? Can he forgive sins? Will he demonstrate it, demonstrate it by raising this man? The answer is yes. Yes and yes. Jesus is Savior and King, come with authority and power, and everyone else is responding to what Jesus did, to what God revealed that day. And to this day, everyone must respond to what Jesus has revealed to himself. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and indeed, he is the one who forgives sins. In the end, we find forgiveness in him, or we won't find it at all. It's only from this man, from the, from the object of our faith, that we can take our true need. Now, we also recognize the religious leaders faced a choice between two courses of actions, two paths. Would they accept the evidence of Jesus' deity? Would they follow their own reason to its conclusion? Would they repent of their skepticism and believe in Jesus? Tragically, we see in this passage, they did not. But their failure, it does instruct us. It's not enough to see the issue. One must act on the knowledge of who God is and ascend to where God is and to place our trust fully in the hands of that God. One of the amazing things that you can do when you read any of the gospel narratives or any of the gospel accounts is that there are two prodding questions that each text of Scripture is asking. What has been fulfilled about the Messiah? And then what is he calling you to do from that? We see here that they saw everything about the Messiah and how they chose to follow him was exactly how we are not called to follow him. They detested him. And unless we act upon them, our insights are useless. Similarly, unless we believe in Christ, it does no good to know who he is. It's not good enough just to have a really good knowledge of God. It's not good enough to just go to where God is. But we must also place our trust in God completely. We need to know who we are placing our trust in. We may go to him and not to anyone else, not trusting in anyone else, not placing our hope in anyone else, not going anywhere else, but we go to him and we place ourselves fully in him. I've probably given the illustration before, but I gave it to someone yesterday. So why not give it to you all? If I'm going to hand Dwight here my phone, my cell phone, which you should not have, during the sermon. If I were to hand him my cell phone, but I hold on to it, and I say, no, 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 take it, take it, really take it from me, but I keep gripping onto it. I am not trusting you with anything that I'm giving you, but we give ourselves fully to the one who is eager to save us from our sins. So we see the reaction of the religious leaders, but we also see a reaction from the crowds. The crowds are like, yet unlike, the leaders. They are unlike the leaders. They do not see the issue clearly, and additionally, they seem to like Jesus. They are, they are filled with awe. Wow! What a party! They praise God, it says in Matthew 9, verse 8. They're amazed and say in Luke 5, verse 26, we have seen remarkable things, yet the more we look at them, the more we realize they come up short. 
While the crowds praise God, they do not give Jesus the praise he is due. In their view, he is a great man. And this idea is not evil, but this idea is very incomplete. Perhaps it was tolerable at the moment until they saw more, but God gives people time to consider who they are and who Jesus is and to weigh the cost of discipleship. But in that time, we must make a stand where Jesus is calling us to follow him, where Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. There are two ways to live, we see. Now the paralytic and his friends got it right. In their quest to find healing from Jesus, they persevered through obstacles. Their goal was to reach Jesus, and they were not going to be stopped by anything. They did not wait for God to open a door or close a window. Sometimes we have to tear the door off of its hinges. Sometimes we have to do it alone. Sometimes we have to do it with others around us. And as we strive for a complex and worthy goal, we encounter many obstacles. Yet it was their faith, like the faith of the paralytic and his friends, that manifests itself by tackling these obstacles, whether as an individual as a family or as a church, they wanted to be in the presence of the king and nothing was going to stop them. Not a late Saturday night and an early Sunday morning. Not a lot of kids at home that keep us from pouring our face into the word. Not a lot of things to do around holidays or people to care for or child pickup lines or I got to go get my career and then I'll get serious. These people literally tore apart a house. And man, did they get more than they asked for, didn't they? H.B. Charles, a pastor in Florida, says that faith in the power of Jesus is shown in the obedience to the authority of Jesus. Faith in the power of Jesus is shown in the obedience to the authority of Jesus. As he always seems to do, Jesus gave these men more than what they sought. They sought more. They sought his healing power in this life, and he granted it for the life of theirs to come. They sought deliverance for a broken body, and it was Jesus who granted deliverance from a heart burdened by sins as well. And so, friends, we we just have to look at these characters. And you have to respond like one of them. Matthew was brilliant in in not leaving like a a scapegoat or like, oh, here's something he didn't think of, or maybe one of them was on a crane on the outside and we didn't see what he would look like. you got to choose... To be one of these people, you either need to place yourself at the foot of the cross, deny who he is and hate who he is, or just wave your hands around religiously because what you just saw is awesome. It is not awesome if it is not for you. So you got to decide. J.C. Ryle in the 1860s said that they had yet to learn that the Son of God could read hearts and discern spirits. Their malicious thought was publicly exposed. They were put to an open shame. There is an important lesson for all of us. All, according to Hebrews 4, all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to deal with. Nothing can be concealed from Christ. Friend, on that day, Jesus forgave sins by a very word. Sometime later, he would earn the right to say that word by going to the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him. And his work 2,000 years ago allows him to say to the paralytic and to all who would believe your sins are forgiven. Now, friends, if these people's face was on the Savior, where is yours? 
Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of Matthew for us, recognizing that we can go to you because you are powerful. We can go to you because you are mighty. We can go to you because you are good. We can go to you because we are, you are faithful. We can go to you because you are trustworthy. We can go to you because you are the fulfillment of all the things of the old, but we can also go to you because in your grip we're placed forgiven because of your son's work on our behalf. Oh God, we pray that you would lift up his cross in our minds and that we would see a tomb that is empty to the point where we would place our whole hearts in your hand without any distraction, without any inhibition, recognizing that you are the one who called us to get up and walk. And may we follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.